meat without slaughter, dairy without the cow, and eggs without chicken. If you're interested in the future of our proteins and want to get an overview, this is the show for you. In this season, we're going to deep dive into the topic. And today we have Paul Shapiro on the podcast. We will talk about how cellular agriculture can revolutionize our food system, the weirdest uses of cultivated meat, and when you get to eat it. Paul Shapiro is the author of the book Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize the World. It was recommended to me by several people, and it's definitely a very interesting read. At that time when it was published, it was actually the first and the only book on cultivated meat. Paul is also the founder of Better Meat Co., which provides companies with plant protein formulas uh, to blend into ground beef, chicken, and pork. Paul is also the host of the Business for Good podcast, one of my favorite podcasts on the topic, and a four times TEDx speaker. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Red to Green podcast, where the future of food meets sustainability. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Let's start with a fun fact about you. Uh, sure, Marina. Um, I I don't know how many fun facts there are, but I'll tell you an interesting fact. So uh, of the few people who might know anything about me, uh, they might come to think that I wrote a book called Clean Meat, which is certainly true. But what fewer people know is that before writing Clean Meat, I actually wrote a novel as well. And it's never been published, but I look forward to publishing it one day. And interestingly enough, the novel uh, is about what happens after a global pandemic. And the pandemic that is uh, happening in, in my novel is a lot deadlier than the pandemic that we're facing today. But the novel is a real dystopian sci-fi uh, story that has a very strong uh, animal welfare theme to it. And it looks at what would happen if humanity actually were dethroned from its uh, place right now as a ruler of all of what is going on on Earth by a, a massive global pandemic. So uh, one day I hope to publish that novel. I'm putting it out into the world right now by saying it here. But that is a fun fact that in addition to writing nonfiction, I also really enjoy both reading and writing fiction as well. How does this relate to the reasons why we should advance cellular agriculture? Uh, well, you know, one of the things that I think a few people contemplate with the pandemic that we're facing right now is that this is not a natural disaster. It's a human-made disaster. It's a disaster that is born out of our exploitation of animals. And so these Chinese wet markets where animals of various species are stacked on top of one another, like bats and pangolins and other animals present really unique opportunities for viruses to mutate and amplify and become low pathogen to high pathogen. And that is why you see this global pandemic today. But it's not just these risky animal use practices in places like China that amplify pandemic risk. Even our own practices in the West of factory farming of animals also are big amplifiers for pandemic risk. In fact, a year ago in April of 2019, I published an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's largest newspaper, about this very topic of pandemics and the factory farming of animals and how by raising tens of thousands of animals wing to wing or snout to snout in windowless warehouses really is like playing viral Russian roulette. And so 
when you think about what are the alternatives to such a system, we could either stop eating animals, um, which would be fine, but so far the world doesn't seem to be going in that direction. In fact, meat meat consumption per capita is just going up and up and up, both in the United States and in China and India and Brazil and Mexico and all the places where it's going to matter the most, meat consumption is going up, not down. So then how can we produce meat with a much lighter footprint on the planet, on animals, on pandemic risk, and so on? And one of the ways that we can do that is by growing animal products without having to raise the animals. No, I'm not talking about alternatives or substitutes to meat, not talking about plant-based alternatives, which are fantastic, but real actual animal meat, real egg proteins, real egg and, and dairy proteins. And the fact is that we no longer have to be reliant on raising and slaughtering animals to make those foods. We can now produce these same exact foods, growing them simply outside of the animal rather than having to raise and slaughter those animals. And so by shifting our type of meat production over to a cellular agriculture rather than a slaughter-based agriculture, we can really reduce pandemic risk in the future and also uh, address many other key pressing problems that our species is currently facing. When we talk about cellular agriculture, the default is to think about meat. What else is encompassed by the term? Well, cellular agriculture is just, you know, growing food from cells. And we've been doing this for decades already. I mean, if you imagine, for example, most cheese today, most hard cheese today contains not necessarily rennet, which used to be obtained from the intestinal lining of calves, But rather, now we grow chymosin, which is the enzyme that is functionally important in rennet, and we grow it via cellular agriculture, and that is what goes into hard cheese to uh, to give it those, those properties of, like, for example, uh, curdling and so on. And as a result, we can you know, safely say that you know, products of it have been consumed for decades, but now, in addition to growing meat from animal cells. Some companies are also growing egg proteins, like for example, Clara Foods, which has uh, raised $50 million so far and is growing actual egg white proteins without the chickens. Or another company, Perfect Day, is growing dairy proteins like whey and casein without having to raise and milk and slaughter cows. So there's another company called Geltor, which is making gelatin and collagen without having to get it from the boiled down bones of livestock. And so all types of animal products, leather, gelatin, egg proteins, and so on, are in addition to the ability to grow meat without animals as well. What is the most common misconception about the topic? Well, many people refer to it as as, an, as novel technology, but in reality, it's just technology that we've been using in other applications for a long time, whether they be in the biomedical field or like in the case of Rennet, as we were just talking about. So these are really just new applications of other technologies that we're already comfortable using as a society. And it's enabling us to produce the same foods, but with a much lower footprint, much less land needed, less water, fewer greenhouse gas emissions, far less animal cruelty, less pandemic risk, and more. So this is a, a way to address many of the most pressing problems that we're facing by just using familiar technologies to us for a new application. When did you realize that this problem is so awful that you have to do something about it? Well, I started thinking about these issues when I was very young. Sadly, it was a long time ago. Uh, but in 1993, a friend of mine showed me a video of what happens to animals on factory farms. And, you know, this was 
way pre-internet, no YouTube. It was like a VHS video that you stuck inside of a VCR and you would rewind the tape. I mean, it was uh, it was a, a different era. That video was like the first time I had ever actually seen what goes on in terms of our food production. And as a result, it really had a profound effect on me. And I thought to myself, what would I do if those were my dogs? You know, if it wasn't pigs or cows or chickens who were being subjected to intensive confinement in cages where they can barely move their whole lives, but what if it was my dogs? What would I do? And I knew the answer was anything. I loved my dogs so much. They were like my family members. And I thought, well, why is it that my dogs get to be treated like loved family members and these other animals are, are treated worse than the most heinous criminals in our society? I mean, we don't take murderers and rapists and put them in prison cells so small that they can't even turn around their entire lives or they can't raise their arms. Yet what crime have these animals committed to be subjected to, to such horrors? And of course, the answer is no crime at all. The answer is that they were just born into a different species than my dogs were. So I started volunteering for animal welfare and food sustainability organizations. And one thing led to another, and my life became devoted to trying to offer a better path to humanity for us to proceed into a future where we no longer view animals merely as commodities to be exploited for any purpose that we want, but rather to have a, a more respectful and compassionate relationship with them where we treat them not as if they were just our servants, but where we treat them with some modicum of decency as well. When you found out about clean meat, what was your first gut reaction? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, so cool. You know, I I am a big fan of, of using uh, technology to advance the, uh, the ethics that we hold as a civilization. You know, if you look, Marina, for example, at what happened in the 19th century with whaling, you know, America was one of the biggest whaling nations on the planet. We're slaughtering huge numbers of whales to, for whale oil to light our homes. There are lots of concerns about the treatment of whales and even possible extinction. People were writing opinion editorials and newspapers about it. Yet in the end, what ended up freeing whales wasn't sustainability concerns. It was the invention of kerosene, which displaced whale oil on the market. Similarly, many of the animal welfare groups of the 19th century were founded because of the mistreatment of horses in our city streets. And these groups saw the abuse of horses who were our forced laborers, and they campaigned for all types of reforms. They wanted to get mandatory resting hours for the horses, Sabbath days in which the horses couldn't be worked. They wanted to have watering stations for the horses and more. Yet in the end, it wasn't humane sentiment that freed horses. It was Henry Ford who freed horses. And the list goes on and on. You know, we don't exploit carrier pigeons anymore, not because we care about pigeons, but because we found better ways to transmit information. So the list goes on and on of the ways that technologies have enabled us to have a less exploitative relationship and more decent relationship with the fellow creatures on, on our planet. When I first heard of cellular agriculture, it was uh, nearly 20 years ago when NASA funded a study that uh, showed that you could grow real meat outside of the fish's body. And a friend of mine, Jason Matheny, saw that and told me about it. And you know, they were, of course, doing the research to see how you could feed tourists in space, right? People were going 
you know, on long-term cosmic tourism, you know, they're not going to be able to bring Noah's Ark in tow. They're going to have to, if they want to eat meat, they're going to have to grow it on board. So my friend Jason was wondering, this is cool for space, but why not do it here on Earth? And so that's when I first learned of it. And I, I would always seem kind of sci-fi, like very futuristic to me, like almost like the Jetsons. But then in like 2013, when Mark Post, who's a Dutch researcher, debuted the first burger that he had grown from animal cells, it became very real to me that this was not just sci-fi, that this was something that you could do. And then a couple years later, when Uma Valetti, another physician, founded Memphis Meats, the first company founded to commercialize this type of clean meat, that's when I became extremely interested in seeing how this type of technology could not only accelerate, but become commercialized. And that's when I decided to write the book, Clean Meat. One question is certainly at the forefront of people's mind. When do we get to eat it? When is it on the shelves? Yeah, well, Marina, it's certainly on my mind as well. Uh, I'm proud to say that in the writing of the book, Clean Meat, I was very fortunate to get to eat it many times. And I write about what that experience was like in the book. And since then, I've also eaten it many times as well. However, um, you know, there's a joke in the cellular agriculture field that whenever you ask, when is it going to be commercialized? The answer is always five years. So whatever year you ask, it's always five years. Um, but I think that now, you know, we're recording this in April of 2020. Um, I don't think it would be unrealistic that within the next year or so, you would start seeing at least somewhere, maybe in Asia, some very limited sales, very limited sales of this type of meat. And uh, then within a few years, maybe you start seeing it come out in a more substantial manner. So rather than just like one time at one restaurant, maybe you start seeing it at limited editions at upscale restaurants and so on. And then maybe within like five to 10 years, it could become something that could actually regularly be on supermarket shelves. But until then, we have great plant-based meats. And even after then, we'll still have great plant-based meats that uh, while they are not actual animal flesh, do a pretty good job of replicating it. And this is why companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods have been so popular is because they have found ways to make plants that really do taste like meat. And as a result, I think we're going to have lots of different options for solving this problem, like in the same way that on fossil fuels, you have many alternatives, wind, solar, geothermal, and so on. In this particular case uh, for factory farming, you'll have many different options from cellular agriculture to plant-based meat to hybridized meats that are combinations of both plant-based and animal-based meats um, and more. What would be a rather freaky use of this innovation? <laughs> well, the most freaky use of it that I have heard of so far, which is pretty awesome in my view, is what a company called Geltor did. So Geltor is um, making cellular collagen, uh, which is the building blocks of gelatin. They can basically grow collagen from almost any species they want. And in fact, for the book Queen Meat, what they did was really cool was they actually grew a lab-grown leather binding. So the very first copy of Queen Meat was bound in Geltor's lab-grown leather. And we sold that copy of the book, the first ever book bound in lab-grown leather, as a fundraiser on eBay. And a collector purchased it for $13,000. And all that money went to the Good Food Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that is devoted to advancing cellular agriculture. But Geltor, in addition to making that lab-grown leather-bound book, also took the genome of the mastodon. Now, the mastodon is like an elephant-like animal who used to roam North America until humans arrived here, and all of a sudden they became extinct. There are still some of these mastodons, though, who are locked away in icy graves. 
And as that has thawed, we've been able to sequence the mastodon genome and Geltor got it. And they ended up making actual mastodon collagen, which they then turned into gelatin and made gummies, not gummy bears, but gummy elephants uh, using mastodon protein. And they ate them. And so this is like the first time anybody has eaten mastodon protein in thousands of years. I mean, it's really a remarkable feat. Yet they did it. It's really cool. And so, yes, freaky, but also pretty cool. I wish I would have eaten one. Yeah, you're probably one of the individuals that has eaten the largest variety of cellular products. Yeah, yeah. you know, of, of any distinctions I might have, I, I think I might have eaten a greater diversity of uh, cell-cultured meat than anybody else. So I've enjoyed cultivated beef, fish, liver, duck, foie gras, chorizo, actually several species of fish and, and more. So it's been a uh, it's been a fun ride being one of the people who gets to enjoy a lot of these products. Um, it's like a cool bragging right for me, but uh, it literally would make me happier than for these foods to become available to millions of people since that, that's certainly the goal. I, I don't want to be in an exclusive club anymore. So what could the future look like? I remember you talked about the possibility of creating any sort of meat, including human meat, for example. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we already do that. So, uh, for example, Marina, if you you know burned your skin, uh, scientists can take cells from your healthy skin and grow your actual skin, not just human skin, but Marina, your skin and put it onto the wound and your body accepts it thinking that it is your skin because that's exactly what it is. It is literally your skin, even though it was grown outside of your body. So we already make those products. Like we already make human products via this type of uh, cellular agriculture, essentially. But, you know, uh, I think a more interesting future could be something to contemplate like the following. Uh, imagine that you walk over to your friend's house and you know, let's say today your friend happens to have an ice cream maker or a bread maker on her kitchen counter. It's cool, but it's not really remarkable. Well, what if she also had a meat maker on her counter and she could purchase like little tea bags filled with stem cells that she could drop in and grow meat right there on her kitchen counter? And maybe if instead of just growing one species of meat, she could actually combine cells and make a combination of some type of a new meat that nobody's ever eaten before. And so, yeah, this seems sci-fi. And of course, it would take a long time. It would take weeks to produce that meat. But that's what people do today in their homes when they brew beer. You know, it takes weeks to brew beer in your home, yet there's still many artisans who like doing that. You could see artisanal meat production occurring in people's homes or even in restaurants where you're brewing your own type of local produced meat that would have your own artisanal touch. And I, I think that would be pretty cool. I'd like to go over to your friend's house and, uh, and try some of that out once it's ready for harvest. <laughs> Definitely. I would totally invite you for self-grown meat. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Self-grown meat. That's good. I like that. Yeah, it's Very like clever. DIY meat. I, I like it. It could even be GIY, grow it yourself meat. Ooh, fancy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we look at it from a global perspective, which countries are the leading players? Well, there's a couple ways to think about this, Marina. So, you know, right now, and if you look at where the concentrations of these companies are, it's, I mean, it's really basically the United States and Israel are like the real leading country, uh, countries on this. 
But there are other places. I mean, there, you know, from places in the Netherlands and Singapore and China, you know, have these types of companies as well, just not as many. Uh, however, the area of greatest need is certainly going to be in Asia. Uh, because, you know, in China, you already have 1.3 billion people um, and meat consumption is rising there as China's middle class continues expanding. It's fantastic because people are escaping poverty, but means they eat a lot more meat as well. And we have to find ways to satiate that demand for meat without destroying the planet in the process. And so this is uh, cellular agriculture is a great way to essentially allow people to eat the kind of diet that most humans want to without having so many downsides as well. How much are governments supporting the development of cultivated meat and which governments are especially supportive? Yeah, well, you know, surprisingly, the United States federal government has actually been a good leader on this. Um, they have um, the, U the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration have announced there's going to be a joint regulatory framework for commercializing these products. Now, it's not clear what that framework is really going to look like or what labeling will look like, but at least they are indicating that they would like to allow the sale of it. And keep in mind right now, no country on earth has permitted the sale of these types of, uh, of cultivated meats. So the U.S. Is, wants to be a leader in that. I think that there are certain Asian countries like Singapore, which are also quite friendly to this type of technology and its role and, and capacity to feed humanity in a sustainable manner. But then at the state level in the United States, many state governments have actually been quite hostile to this type of technology because of the, what they perceive as the threat of it posing to the status quo. And that if, you know, you imagine if we have more efficient ways to produce meat, the less efficient ways end up can be end up getting outcompeted. And rather than embracing innovation, some state lawmakers have instead just wanted to protect the incumbent industries, mainly uh, animal agriculture, to prevent um, these type of uh, innovations from becoming popular. So at the state level, it's a different picture than at the federal level in the United States. But I think overall, the countries where this is going to matter the most, so far, there's only indications of uh, receptivity to cultivated meat. What criticism of cellular agriculture do you agree with? One of the issues I, I think that has been raised, which is valid, is that this is not a solution for the near term. Many people, when they hear about this, they think, wow, this is amazing. You know, this will really solve all the problems. And so we don't have to focus on other solutions as well. But even under the best case scenario, if you're looking 10 years from now, cultivated meat is going to be a tiny, tiny portion of the meat market, certainly not the majority and probably far less than that. And so it's a long-term solution, but we need other solutions as well. Cultivated meat is extremely important. We should be investing more than we are in it. But it's only one solution. So just in, th in the same way that fossil fuels are so problematic, you want lots of different alternatives. So again, like, you know, wind, geothermal and solar, the factory farming of animals is also so problematic from an animal welfare perspective, climate change, antibiotic resistance, pandemic risk, deforestation and more. You want lots of different alternatives. And so, yes, you want cellular agriculture, but you also want plant based meat. You want to have, for example, hybrids, like, again, products that are blends of both animal and plant proteins together. And so there's lots of different options that you can do. And so cellular agriculture, as important as it is, is just one tool in the toolbox for addressing this problem of raising and slaughtering billions upon billions of animals for food. So this is a bit of an unusual question, but I'm interested to see where this may lead us. 
During your research for the book, you were talking to a lot of people, you were getting your information from a lot of sources. Was there a question that was particularly hard to answer? Um, yeah, I think that one of the biggest issues, Marina, was the discrepancy in people's opinions about what will get commercialized first. I think it used to be conventional wisdom that products like leather would be the first products on the market that would be like cultivated leather grown from animal cells or from from collagen from animals who who never were living. But um, I do also think, though, that now it seems like maybe products like egg proteins or milk proteins might actually be first, or maybe it won't be food at all, but maybe, for example, Geltor is making collagen for the cosmetics market, not for the food market. And so cellular agriculture can be used for a variety of things, not just food, but also clothing, cosmetics, and so on. And so um, there's, a, I think, a lot of just, uh, when I was writing the book and still today, a, a lot of um, different opinions about what would be the most likely first products to get commercialized. How important is the naming of cultivated meat? So what it's called in books, in the news, or on the labels for the success of it? It matters a lot, Marina. It matters a lot. What you call something matters. And we've learned this time and time again in other food products. What they're called really matters, and they help to shape how people think about it. And so it used to be that these products were um, referred to just as scientists by a scientific name, in vitro meat. Well, in vitro meat, of course, uh, doesn't really whet many appetites. It makes people think of in vitro fertilization, uh, which is not something you want to think about when you're thinking about what type of lunch you want to have today. So then people uh, shifted to start calling it cultured meat, which is certainly an improvement over in vitro, but still it's kind of sciencey. And um, as a result, some public opinion surveys were done, which showed that clean meat is actually far, far better for consumers than something like cultured meat. And not only is it uh, clean, like as in clean energy, like this is cleaner for the planet, but it's also literally cleaner. Um, think about it right now. If you take raw meat into your house, you have to treat it almost like hazardous waste. You know, if it touches your counter, you have to decontaminate your counter. You have to have different bags in the supermarket that you put your raw meat in. If it gets in your hands, you need to wash your hands. But you don't have to do that with apples or with oranges. And the reason is because there's fecal contamination on the meat. E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, these are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of the meat, literally. That's what we're literally doing, cooking the crap out of the meat. And so with queen meat, though, you don't have to worry as much about intestinal pathogens because there are no intestines in the first place. You're growing the muscle or the fat. You're not growing the intestines. And so you're more likely to infect the meat with your hands than the meat is to infect you. So that's why queen meat became popular for a while. However, um, there were meat industry companies that were investing in this space that felt uncomfortable with the term queen meat because they thought it was derogatory toward conventional meat, like it was saying conventional meat was dirty. And so some of the companies in the space that either had funding from the meat industry or wanted funding from the meat industry started shifting away. And there was a temporary move toward calling it cell-based meat, which is what the meat industry was pressing for. And then uh, surveys showed that cell-based meat is very unappetizing to consumers. It's very sciencey. Most people don't want to eat cells. I mean, of course, everything you eat today comes from cells, but um, 
you know, doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really make anybody salivate to, to think about eating cells and all meat is, is cell-based anyway. The meat that people eat today is based on cells. Plant-based meat is made out of cells. So it's a little bit misleading. And so, um, that has led some people just to go back to calling it clean meat again. Other people like the Good Food Institute now favor a term cultivated meat, um, which is also a consumer friendlier way to describe it. And I think that term is fine too. I, I don't have any problem with it. What's odd is that if you notice, Marina, all of these words start with C. So there's, uh, you know, there's cultivated meat, queen meat, cell-based meat, cultured meat. It's like, you know, nobody can come up with something that's different. Uh, but um, I, I'm fine with queen meat. I'm fine with cultivated meat. You know, I just want to make sure that we have something that is based on what's actually going to make the product popular. That's the most important thing and is accurate. Obviously, you want something that's both accurate and consumer friendly. So cultivated meat and queen meat to me seem to be like the top two for that thing, for that, for those purposes. But these are not legal names for the product. These are, you know, marketing names, right? Uh, you're not going to see like FDA or USDA coming out and calling it this. More likely, they're going to call it cell cultured meat. Um but uh, I doubt they'll call it cell-based meat because um, that's, of course, confusing given, again, that all meat is cell-based. So anyway, um, those are uh, the names. That's the explanation behind where we are at on the naming issue right now. And uh, I hope that there will be focus on the um, not just uh, what investors who are in the meat industry want, but also what's going to work with consumers and base this on actual evidence of what's going to make the, popular, the product the most popular. Is there anything that you find important that we haven't yet touched upon? Well, I think one thing that we haven't touched upon, Marina, is this question that always comes through people's mind is, are people going to eat this? You know, like, are people really going to eat meat that is grown from animal cells outside of animals' body? Well, just think about the meat that people eat today. You know, right now, the meat that people eat, just take chicken as an example. Most of the chicken that is eaten today comes from birds who are genetically manipulated to grow so big, so fast, that many of them can't walk more than a few steps before they collapse underneath their weight. They live wing to wing by the tens of thousands in their own feces. They never go outdoors. And then when it's time to slaughter them, most people would probably rather not hear what happens. And so when you think about just how inhumane and unsustainable our current methods of meat production are, uh, growing meat without animals seems just a, a lot more attractive to us. And so I think today, most people eat meat, not because animals were raised and slaughtered, but really in, in spite of those facts. And so assuredly, there will be some people who won't want to eat this, and that's fine. Nobody's going to force it down their throats. But um, I think a lot of people, when given the choice, will be quite happy to have a product that is functionally the same, except much better for the planet, better for animals, and better for public health as well. Well, I think that was a great overview of cultivated meat let's come to one of the last questions of this episode what are you currently excited about what i am extremely excited about is the trend toward hybridization and so if you think about like vehicles right you have electric cars which still represent less than one percent of the vehicle market and uh, they're cool they're teslas they're awesome they're all electric they're really cool but they're really expensive and they're still less than 1% of the market. Well, that's comparable in some ways to plant-based meat today. Plant-based meat is awesome. It's like all electric or all animal free, but it's just much more expensive and it's still less than 1% of the meat market. And so if we could make the 99% of cars that are being purchased have, let's say, 
10 or 15 miles per gallon more than they currently get, you would have a much bigger gain, environmentally speaking, than just by shifting that 1% to, let's say, 2 or 3%, which would be huge if we could double or triple the demand for electric vehicles. Similarly, in the meat industry, I think there's now a trend toward hybridization, toward taking the default products that most people are buying and making them, instead of being solely meat, combining them with plant proteins. And that's what my own company, The Better Meat Co., does. We're a, plant pro- we're a plant protein formula provider for meat companies. We sell plant protein formulas to meat companies for them to hybridize their products and make sure that they can sell products that contain fewer animals and more plants. And it makes their products better, better in every way, better tasting, better for the planet, better for the consumer, better for the company. And so that's one of the trends I'm most excited about. Yes, plant-based meats are awesome. Yes, cultivated meat when it comes out is going to be awesome. But hybridization is something that can happen right now to huge portions of the meat industry and really lighten that industry's footprint on the planet in the near term. Let's imagine you have $50 million to invest. Where would you invest it in if you can't put it into your own company and it's not limited to the food industry? Well, probably what I would do is look at like, where are the needs and the white spaces in this industry? So um, part of what I would do is think about uh, where on plant-based are the big white spaces. So most plant-based meat is burgers. A smaller portion is chicken and an even smaller portion is seafood. Um, And if you think about like, crustacean meat, like crab meat and lobster meat, it's very expensive. And so rather than trying to compete on cost, like with burgers or with chicken, which are both pretty cheap products, you can try to compete on cost with some product with something that costs way more than this and has a big sustainability and animal welfare benefit. I mean, after all, we boil these animals alive. It's hard to believe it's even legal, um, but that's the standard method of slaughtering these animals is to boil them alive. And so I would probably look at at trying to either grow or make from plant-based sources crustacean meat and how we could bring some improvements there. And then in addition to that, I would also be looking at ways that we can improve family planning around the world. Uh, So, you know, right now, um, one of the things that is keeping a lot of hundreds of women, hundreds of millions of women in poverty around the world and unable to improve the lot of themselves and their families is lack of access to family planning. And there's hundreds of millions of women who would like to have fewer children. That's better for them, better for their kids who they are going to have. Um, it, so it would be better for them if they had family planning. It would be better for their kids who they are going to have. They'll have better uh, resources and education. And it's better for the world as we become more and more populated. So uh, family planning is, I think, one of the most uh, cost-effective ways to help make the world a better place. And so I'd probably look at investing in family planning programs that can help reduce the cost of doing it. So um, finding uh, technologies that can really help um, democratize family planning and bring it all around the world so that it's not a luxury, but is just a simple fact of daily life for people, especially for women in the third world. Wow, these are two very interesting areas. Where can people reach out to you? Well, I'd welcome hearing from anybody. You can go to my website, which is paul-shapiro.com. Again, paul-shapiro.com. And on there, you can email me. You can uh, look and see uh, any of my writings. Uh, you know, I write for uh, newspapers and magazines, not not just this book. You can look and see that or see any of my uh, TEDx talks that are on there as well. So uh, I'd welcome hearing from anybody who wants to get in touch with me. I read every email that I receive. And so uh, I hope you'll get in touch. Thank you for the great interview, Paul. Marina, it's my pleasure. Thank you. 
This was the Red to Green podcast. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode where we will discuss the Japanese market. If you like the podcast, please leave an iTunes review so more people find out about it. Let's move from red to green.